I'm David Karras, and you're listening to Polico Conversations in Political Economy. It was easier to fight apartheid than it is to fight neoliberalism. Through the hatred for this regime and for the big corporations that were clearly its allies, it was possible for the trade union movement to mix a form of workplace mobilization and political mobilization, where everybody had a clear objective, which was regime change. But the moment the regime changed, and that regime ended up reforging an alliance with the same incumbent capitalists, people suddenly were at a loss. I should preface today's conversation by pointing out that in many ways it is a follow-up to episode 6, which discussed industrial policy in Rwanda and Sub-Saharan Africa more generally with British Bahiria. If you missed episode 6 of Polico, I encourage you to check it out. Today's episode is the first part of a conversation with Nicolas Ponsvignon, who played an instrumental role in setting up APORT, the African Program on Rethinking Development Economics, a unique training program teaching heterodox development economics in South Africa. In this episode, we explored Nicolas' personal research background and his outlook on South Africa's post-apartheid developmental trajectory. We talk about some of the root causes of South African deindustrialization, the reception of neoliberal ideas by policymakers, the policy impact of neoclassical orthodoxy in economics departments, and the need for alternative heterodox educational programs to broaden the horizons of policymakers in developing countries. My name is Nicolas Ponsvignon. I'm a professor in labor transformations and social innovation at a university called SUPSI. It's the University of Applied Sciences of Southern Switzerland. Uh, and I'm also a visiting senior fellow with the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, where before coming to SUPSI, I was working for can you explain a little bit what is your background as a as a scholar and as a researcher? What are the themes on which you have been working? Well, I would say I, I probably have two main areas of interest. One is is questions around the, the transformations of labor relations, and in particular the growing uh, precarity that characterizes uh, labor relations. I look at them from a political economy perspective, and, and what I mean by this is while I think much of the more interesting literature on these questions comes from sociology, for example. I think what sociologists sometimes tend to focus on is the manifestations of increasingly precarious working conditions, the impacts these have on people's lives at work and outside of work. Uh, and that, of course, is, is crucial because, on the other hand, economists remain very fixated on unemployment as an indicator of the health of the labor market, and therefore tend to underestimate or flat out ignore or deny that there's a problem with precarity and with precarious working conditions. And for me, the value added of taking a political economy perspective, meaning a perspective on the economy that looks at it as a locus of, of struggles, of tensions, that looks at power or lack of power as an absolutely key concept, is to try and understand the ways in which we can locate growing precarity within the restructuring of, of capitalist accumulation and within in particular the restructuring of the way in which production has been organized and, and regulated. So that, that's sort of one, one area. And it was very much an area of interest for me that grew first and foremost out of my interest in Southern Africa. 
Africa. Many years ago, I, I did a, a wonderful year at SOAS in London, where I did my, my master's on the impact of the fast track land resettlement in Zimbabwe on black farm workers or black plantation workers. And that was a little bit of an unusual focus because the way in which the media, in particular, of course, the British media, which was at the time very closely related to a lot of the white farmers' interests in Zimbabwe, presented the issue was almost a racial war, uh, a black government trying to kill and remove white farmers from the land. And that was a remarkably myopic view on the situation because, roughly speaking, for every, every farmer or every two or three farmers that would be removed from the land, hundreds of black farm workers were typically also expelled because they were usually in most cases, not recipients of, of land reform. These farm workers ended up forming a, an enormous kind of itinerant group of people. UNHCR at the time proposed opening refugee camps, something that, that the Mugabe regime, of course, refused. There were a couple of researchers, uh, Blair Rutherford in particular, who was really interested in, in their situation, but not many. And I suspect many of these farm workers have ended up forming a kind of surplus labor in, in Southern African South African, I mean, agriculture, probably one of the things that's behind what I observed in my, in my PhD. So that, that's really where my, my interest in those questions uh, was formed. In other words, an interest in questions of labor that was also a way to make sense of questions of poverty in the context of, of Africa, certainly of Southern Africa. And for me, the main sort of take-home point was it's impossible to talk about poverty as a technical issue. Poverty isn't just a question of a residual question. People aren't poor because they lack something simply. And if you give them a, an extra training or a piece of credit or a piece of land, suddenly, magically, they're going to come out of poverty. There's something fundamentally political behind the processes that, that produce, uh, reproduce or, or increase poverty. The, the other big area of interest uh, for my research, uh, and that was really forged in, in my years and working in South Africa at WITS, is looking at economic policy and in particular at productive policy, so industrial policies. And initially, I started work in 2008 with a, a research unit called CSID, which stood for Corporate Strategy and Industrial Development Research Program. And with a number of colleagues, there, Siraj Mohammed, Susan Newman, Sam Ashman, and others. We were doing commissioned research for the Department of Trade and Industry and other South African government departments, working on the development of various pieces of research supporting, uh, helping write parts of, of economic policy or of, of industrial policy. And that was a really rich experience because it's, it's obviously when you start looking at those policies that you feel you start touching on what could actually make a real difference to, to economic development. At the same time, it's the more you start understanding about the tensions around both the formulation of these policies, but also perhaps even more crucially, the implementation of these policies, that you start realizing how far you are if you're just thinking about what policies may or may not be useful policies, how far you are from actually having any impact. Because you see the, the gap, and the gap is an understatement between policy formulation and policy implementation. So faced with that gap and faced, I guess, with, with growing frustration or disillusionment, I, I became more and more interested in looking at economic policy and social policy as well from the point of view of political economy again. In other words, understanding what makes certain policies or what leads to certain policies being implemented or partially implemented, why they're partially implemented or partially, absolutely not implemented, and, and why there is often such a, a baffling 
contrast between what is being claimed and what is being done. I had in particular, and that was, I guess, one of my you know, very exciting part of my life there with my colleague and friend Gilad Isaacs, who was leading this, this project. We, we worked on the, uh, the background research for the implementation of the national minimum wage in South Africa, which was implemented in 2018. That was, uh, that was an independent project, but I think uh, largely thanks to, to Gilad and also Ruth Castelbranco's um, extraordinary energy and insight was able to have quite a significant impact. But even though I think it was possible to have an impact in, in policy discussions, again, the reality of implementation ended up being quite underwhelming. That was also something that reinforced me in the in the belief that sometimes we need to take a step back as academics who work on questions of policy and, and really ask ourselves what it is that our role is and what it is that the real impact we can have as and uh, is and, and where we should focus our, our energies. As you said, let's take a step back to situate the context. So you mentioned that when you arrive in Zimbabwe or South Africa, you are particularly interested in both questions related to poverty, poverty in work and industrial policy. Can you perhaps um, give us a snapshot of the... Um, political economic challenges faced by post-apartheid uh, South Africa in relation to both of these questions? I arrived in South Africa in 2004, thanks to a um, PhD scholarship that allowed me to do for three and a half years my uh, research, my thesis, which was looking at the restructuring of the forestry sector. I guess when I arrived in South Africa, there was still a feeling that it somehow deserved being called something like an emerging country or a middle-income country. I mean, there was this, this kind of vague, diffuse optimism that even though the country had some serious challenges, of course, inequality being the one that, that stands out, but there was a feeling that the country was was trying, was was moving moving in a positive direction. The first few years when I was there, I was able to, to meet a number of, of really remarkable people, among whom I, I should quote uh, Nimrod Zalk, who, who in many ways was one of the main instigators of South Africa's industrial policy, which was uh, first started officially as an overall policy framework in the mid-2000s. And through meeting those people, I realized that there was a growing tension within the South African government, beyond this, uh, probably within the ANC, around the question of the policy orientation of the country. From the mid-1990s onwards, especially since the uh, implementation of the infamous GEAR program, GEAR standing for Growth, Employment and Redistribution in 1996, which was typically a, a very neoliberal policy package that really promoted none of these <laughs> stated objectives, but did achieve a certain level of, of budget equilibrium, although a budget equilibrium in a country like South Africa does seem like a slightly bizarre policy objective. There was a very clear commitment you know, to, in particular, budget control from the national treasury, very limited increases uh, in spending, which were mostly going to some social programs and, and to increases in wages, but very, very limited increase in particular in, in investment, which of course is the lifeblood of, of any development. The, there was a growing feeling that there was a need to move to a more interventionist 
uh, strategy to try and, and fashion a kind of South African developmental state. This was actually the, the subject of a number of publications in the late 2000s and early 2010s. And the idea was to say, well, it's time you know, to learn our lesson, to try and learn from a number of other developing countries that have actually been able to, to do much better than we have. And it's time to limit the influence of, let's say, broadly speaking, a neoliberal macro policy regime on, on the direction of the country. So I think that that's really where uh, where the country was when I arrived in, in the first few years. And that was the environment in which I was able to somehow participate in, in some of these reflections and efforts. As you can imagine, a very fractured terrain with very, very strong tensions. I, I don't think these tensions were running a very clear line. There was on the one hand, of course, there was a kind of very explicitly pro-market establishment, in particular sponsored by the private sector and linked to a number of university departments. They were also much more progressive and critical voices in a number of universities and in related also to some parts of the trade union movement. And then there was a kind of, I would say, a kind of middle ground of, of people advocating for what they would call our reasonable policies, saying we do need to take a number of social and economic concerns into greater consideration, but always very much on leash, or if I, if I can use that expression, in terms of, of a certain fear of appearing to be populist or appearing to to cross certain certain lines in terms of, of spending, deficit, etc. etc. Yeah, it's been a really, really exciting and there was a certain belief that some kind of breakthrough was possible, at least at least at the time. You mentioned that you arrived in the early 2000s, which is probably the apex of neoliberal hegemony in sub-Saharan Africa as in much of the global south. And you, you describe how variegated forms of neoliberalism are taking hold in South Africa, although there are internal tensions and divisions in terms of the political elites embrace or resistance towards it. Now, just for contextualizing South Africa's positionality in relation to sub-Saharan African countries more generally that have been devastated by structural adjustment programs throughout the 1980s, 90s, 2000s. Was there anything specific that stood out in South Africa in terms of its developmental pathway since the end of apartheid? Was it a um, typical case or an outlier besides its obviously bigger industrial capacities and larger domestic market? Well, a really interesting question, uh, and and it's I should I should start by saying that you know whenever one thinks of South Africa in a in an African context, one is often faced with with either of two I think seriously flawed tendencies. One is exceptionalism, trying to say that South Africa, because of its history, settler colonialism, segregation, and apartheid, really vibrant or very advanced, at least industrial and financial sectors, that South Africa is somehow totally different from the rest of the continent. And of course, in some respects, it is different from, from other countries in the continent. But in many respects, it is extremely similar. And that, that, that is, in fact, I would say the other misconception that certainly I have encountered many times in South Africa is the notion of assuming that it's possible to infer what is happening on the continent by looking at South African realities. As if South Africa was just an illustration of what happens elsewhere and it was possible to save on the effort of really understanding what's happening elsewhere in order to understand the continent. So I'm talking about one South African reality and I, I just remove the word South and, and refer to it as, as African. 
So what is similar and, and what is different? What is different is, is clear. It's a very different economic story. The South African economy, although it's very fractured, has experienced very rapid phases of growth, industrialization. It's got an incredibly overdeveloped financial sector, which grew out of its mining sector in the 20th century. And it's got still, although probably rapidly falling apart, a, a very strong infrastructure, you know, electricity production, transport and so on and so forth. And that really makes it, you know, in many ways, a place that a lot of investors look at as a possible gateway into the rest of the continent because it, it's easier from that point of view. So that, that I think, is, is, is one thing which, uh, which, is, which is specific about South Africa. The other one, if we think about your question on neoliberalism, is that many of the countries that you're referring to that were wrecked by the consequences of neoliberal policies had to implement those policies as part of packages through stabilization and structural adjustment programs. In other words, they were coerced to a large extent into those. South Africa wasn't coerced into anything. I mean, there's many debates we could get into in South Africa around the degree to which the IMF uh, and others tried to put pressure on Mandela before he came to power and, and the role of people like Thabo Mbeki and others. But the reality is there was never a gun on South Africa's, South Africa's uh, head. The adoption of neoliberal policies in the 1990s, even though those neoliberal policies did have a few specificities. They weren't exactly the same. They were broadly the same as what was adopted elsewhere was absolutely self-inflicted wound. There was no constraint. There was no coercion. What I found in my own research fascinating is not so much the adoption of those policies, because I think the 90s, you know, you said the 2000s were the apex. In many ways, I think the 90s were also an apex. It was a moment where a country that was that had a new ruling elite that really wanted to reintegrate uh, the world and be respected by the world had to face the reality that its former supporters and the former communist bloc were either not in existence anymore or totally out of fashion. And suddenly there was this enormous pressure to say, everybody says that, you know, it would be the wrong thing to, to run too many uh, state-owned enterprises, to have too much of a role in the economy. The right thing to do is to make the state lean. The right thing to do is to privatize. The right thing to do is to, is to, do, is to liberalize capital flows, etc., etc. And this is what they did. And, and what I realized doing research on this is those policies actually, their seeds were planted already in the late 1970s and early 1980s in the lobbying of the large corporations, the large conglomerates that basically represent most of South Africa's economy, lobbying the apartheid government to say, you need to start liberalizing the economy. Their interest in doing so, of course, was to protect their own interest and not expose themselves too much to, to the possibility of the state taxing them or drawing on their resources to finance, for example, military activities. But what's very clear is that these policies continued and deepened into the 1990s and, and, and democratic rule. Uh, and that, I think, is really interesting because South Africa is a country where you have areas which can be richer than some of the richest areas in the world. I mean, anyone who's been to the coastal parts of Cape Town, it's almost shockingly wealthy. I find it personally almost nauseating some of these areas. And at the same time, you've got areas where you've got a mix of extreme deprivation, but also because South Africa is a very unequal and violent society. You really have a situation which could perhaps be compared to a really poor North American or, or, or Northern European project, but just a lot worse, right, in terms of, of, of destitution mixed with, with violence. And it's, it's just quite astonishing to think of a country with such inequalities that's 
first adopted and then stuck to a neoliberal policy regime. And I think you know, I said earlier, for a while, South Africa was, was thought of as an emerging country. I think only, only a few people who, who really don't want to look at reality would, would argue this today. I mean, the notion that South Africa is emerging uh, is simply not borne out by fact. Growth has been incredibly sluggish. Unemployment is, is rising. If, uh, not that it, it seems possible when you see how high it's been for, for decades, but it's rising to levels which are almost unparalleled in the world with very limited labor force participation, which means very few people have paid jobs. Uh, many people depend for their survival on, on state grants, which are really small. Of course, altogether, they amount to a large amount of money. That's what the right loves to emphasize. But of course, that's because many people uh, receive them. And to think that in a country like this, there hasn't been more of a challenge to, uh, you know, I mean, neoliberalism, we can talk about it, means many things. Certainly one thing it means is the hostility to state, to large-scale state investment into developing the productive sectors. And there, there hasn't been that. And the fact that there hasn't been that for me is, is really one of the big things that really puzzles me, even though I think I, I've got some ideas about why this is the case. But it's really, it's really striking. You know? it's, it's not surprising that South Africa isn't doing better than it is when you look at its economic policy trajectory. And yet it remains really surprising that there wasn't the ability to change course at some point. You also mentioned something very interesting, that the lobbying of domestic conglomerates for uh, liberalization is something that can be actually traced back to the 1970s. So these lobbying efforts by different domestic capitalist groups, how did they actually impact South Africa's industrial capacities in global production and um, global financial markets. When thinking about developmental states, I think there's many, many ways one can, one can understand the concept of a developmental state. But I think one thing that is fundamental and that, that perhaps is a good way to understand what has failed in South Africa is to think of the ability of the state to work with its capitalist groups and coerce them, coerce them, in inverted commas, of course, because they, they always make money out of it, but coerce them to do things that serve the general interest. And of course, the, the case study for this would be, would be the relationship between the Korean state and the large Korean chaebol, the, the Samsung and, and Daewoo and others, which of course are incredibly rich and successful companies, but which have worked closely with the state and have worked under the influence and, and control, and sometimes quite tightly so, of the state in guiding their, their development. I think South Africa possibly had elements of that a long time ago, in, in the interwar period and the, during the war period and after the war, because what you had at the time was, and this is a, a claim that's made by the late Bill Freund, who was a, a remarkable economic and social historian, whose last book was uh, exactly on this, on the hypothesis of a South African developmental state in the 20th century. What you had was a political majority, of course, in a racist electoral system of poor whites, most of them African most of them either farmers, relatively unsuccessful farmers, many of them, and poor workers, who were highly frustrated at the fact that the economic direction of the country was decided by the so-called British minority, which was of course dominated by all the large mining conglomerates. Those mining conglomerates, as, as any mining conglomerate would want to, were against any form of industrial policy because they 
They wanted to sell for the highest possible price the minerals that they were extracting and they weren't interested in trying to develop, for example, local capacity for manufacturing machinery that could be uh, used in South Africa. They were happy with a free trade regime, the, the highest possible valuation for, for the local currency, uh, and that, that was what they wanted. And that led to, effectively, to, to, to the arrival of the apartheid regime because the apartheid regime was largely elected, or the National Party was largely elected, on the premise of a program that tried to eradicate white poverty. And of course, the main instrument to eradicate white poverty was to try and, and put a level of control on those conglomerates and force them to a certain extent to serve the national interest. Now, I'm not saying for a second that those conglomerates were made poor by the apartheid regime. In fact, the seminal work of, of Ben Fine and Zav Restumji shows in their analysis of what they call the minerals energy complex, which is their, I think, quite compelling characterization of the system of accumulation in, in South Africa in the 20th century, that there was a symbiotic relationship between uh, the mining conglomerates, of course, uh, also diversified into finance, and the attempts by the Afrikaner state and private bourgeoisie to work with them and develop the Afrikaner population and the Afrikaner bourgeoisie. All of it, of course, largely at the expense of the majority black population. So those conglomerates, as they were in the 1970s, would gather a number of sometimes mind-blowingly diverse activities. So those conglomerates gathered activities that were financial. They all had uh, elements of engineering, you know, anything from, from retail to timber, for example, and so on and so forth. I've mentioned Nimrod Zark already. He, he did a, a really important PhD at SOAS uh, with Mushtaq Khan, where he showed, he focused on the, the process of restructuring in a later part of period of several of these conglomerates. And what he shows, and, and that's that's where I'm getting to the answer to your question, is that those conglomerates made a conscious decision to restructure in a way that favored their more liquid activities, in particular mining and trading of mining products, and started shedding in particular all of their engineering activity. What this means is that it wasn't anymore in the interest of the conglomerates to promote an industrial policy that would have focused on, for example, on, on advanced manufacturing or on the parts of, of their activity that could be associated with industrial development. I mean, the strong suspicion is this was all done on purpose because the idea was also to make sure that it was possible to take their money out and start diversifying internationally. I mean, Switzerland, where I now work, is, is a country where several of the biggest companies, in fact, are South African companies. And you find big South African companies now anywhere from New York, London, uh, Australia, and so on and so forth. Uh, mining and, and, and many other uh, sectors, luxury, of course, uh, being one of them, and tobacco. This internationalization of South African capital, which happens in the 1980s and 1990s, is done in part through effective lobbying. But this effective lobbying is accompanied by a very strong ideological element, uh, which is in itself the same that you find in many countries like Brazil that adopt these similar policies at the same time, which is we are living in a new international world of global finance. It is inefficient to have capital controls, for example, or to force us to remain largely located inside the country, allow us to develop internationally. And what we will do is we'll raise cheaper capital and bring it back into the country and reinvest. Now, of course, that never happened. 
I mean, I remember a few years ago, uh, my late colleague Vishnu Pariyachi was working with a student on one of the big questions of the 1990s. Why did the ANC government allow Anglo-American Corporation to change its primary listing out of Johannesburg into, into London and New York? And again, the answer is because there were promises made, but it's pretty clear when you look at it, that those promises were nothing more than promises. Of course, there's a question around the effectiveness of the lobbying. But I mean, that's one part of the story, right? You can say they they weren't constrained, but they were lobbied or they were convinced. But I think the question we need to ask if we want to be serious about understanding development, both in its success and failure, is not just, of course, private companies try to do what's in their interest. What's interesting also is why do governments not actually act against it? Why do they allow themselves to be talked into this? Uh, And that's unfortunately a a slightly more, that's a trickier question, I think, because it it involves sometimes being self-critical, which is not something that that many regimes or many political parties are, are very good at doing. I would like briefly to touch upon the role of ideas. In terms of the epistemic landscape, that you find in South Africa in the early 2000s. What can you tell us about how South African academia positioned itself in these debates? Was there resistance to the neoliberal mainstream or was there a full embrace of it? Was there any legacy of Marxist or heterodox um, thinking remaining in the ANC or also in academic circles? Or was it something that was completely wiped in the, in the 1990s? South Africa is undoubtedly a country that punches above its weight when it comes to its contribution in in academia. Across a range of disciplines, certainly in the social sciences, from anthropology to economics uh, to sociology, there's a very strong tradition of of really remarkable South African scholars that have made a a huge impact in their field. And of course, if, if one name were to come to mind, it's the name of Eddie Webster, the great labor sociologist who was both working with uh, the trade union, the then forbidden trade union movement from the 1970s, and then played a key role in establishing uh, a very strong uh, radical labor sociology uh, tradition that was always very critical of, of neoliberalism. But of course, there's a, there's a little <laughs> specification to that claim, which is the field of economics in particular uh, is a field that has been ideologically uh, uh, disciplined and, and, and methodologically disciplined in the past 70 years very strongly. And I think South Africa was certainly no exception to that. So you had a number of, of, of dissenting voices against government policies, uh, but many of these voices were one way or another silent, certainly in the field of economics. The, at least the, the neoliberal orientation of, of policy wasn't necessarily the biggest subject uh, of focus by, by a number of economists, with a few exceptions, of course. And, and I think that that does beg the question of why South Africa's great radical intellectual tradition, which of course has also given a lot of amazing scholars to universities all around the world, because many of these South African scholars have emigrated uh, and, and had great careers. Why wasn't there more of that critical tradition that existed to theorize in various ways uh, and, and sometimes trying to use anything from regulation theory to Marxism to a range of other frameworks to theorize the relationship between capitalism and apartheid in particular and try and make sense uh, of things like the minerals energy complex. Why didn't that provide the terrain for a stronger academic resistance 
to, to the neoliberal shift of the 1990s. Why was that resistance confined to a handful of, of lone voices, although these started coalescing more in the 2000s? I think one of the reasons can be found in the fact that many of the people who were critical scholars or on the margins, if you want, of South African academia and society in the 1970s, 80s, and, and early 90s, by virtue of being one way or another related to the liberation movement or having supported the liberation movement, turned from independent scholars to either policymakers themselves or to people whose livelihoods as policy researchers or consultants became related to the world of policy. When you do research, even if you want to be independent, if you're, you're funded to try and find a solution to a problem, what you end up trying to do is to find a solution to that problem within the framework that you're operating in. And I think that's a very, very strong phenomenon. I mean, many, many people have written about it, that a lot of that critical edge was lost And, and you can understand it. I mean, I'm talking about it in, in, a, in terms that may appear to be a bit negative, because I think I, I got frustrated with, with, with that when I was in South Africa. But I totally understand. Suddenly you find yourself sitting with people who tell you, well, you know, you've been critical, but now we're trying to find good solutions. Help us find those solutions, you know. Let's try and do it together. Let's come up with, the better, with better policies. I think a lot of people got sucked into that. And, and perhaps the, the last thing to say, which perhaps explains that, but in, in one of my papers with Aurelia Segati, we, we, we used the, the idea of the art of neoliberalism. We said what, what, what characterizes South African neoliberalism in, in the 90s and 2000s is that every time there's a neoliberal policy that is implemented, it is couched as if it were a policy aimed at reducing poverty and promoting growth. You know, there was such a strong contradiction between what the policy was actually doing and what the policy claimed to be doing, including, as I said in the name, gear, growth, employment, and redistribution. Who disagrees with that, right? No one's going to disagree with such a nice program. And of course, the detail were, were mightily different. But the ANC, for example, was always claiming that it was, you know, I think that was one claim, which is preposterous, Uh, uh, that the ANC was trying to combine East Asian developmental state with a Northern European welfare state and, but you say this in a lower voice, trying to keep a little bit of budgetary and, 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 uh, and macro policy rigor in all of this mix, right? Of course, this is almost a triangle of impossibility. But this was the very strong claims that were made Uh, and I think those claims allowed a number of areas of government to start developing policies almost autonomously one from the other to try and respond to a range of problems. And of course, perhaps the thing that, that becomes clear with, with hindsight is that you know, these problems are all somewhat related to one another. You cannot be undermining, for example, financing for infrastructure and just trying to magically fix infrastructure without investing in it. If The academic world in and of itself was unable to mount an ideological resistance to neoliberal dogma. Were there any alternative fora, groups, spaces where potentially critical ideological frameworks could be expressed? They were, um, in particular in, in the emergence uh, of a number of, of really interesting so-called civil society movements. One of them uh, is the anti-privatization forum that started from the experience of a number 
of poor South Africans who had to face what it meant to have suddenly uh, privatized and to have to pay for their electricity, for their water, for a number of other services, or who were expecting this magical, magical expression in South Africa, service delivery, that, you know, possibly one of the consequences of the fact that the ANC decided to go for what was politically a very intelligent, low-hanging fruit, which was to build uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of so-called RDP houses, RDP being the name of, of the very first public policy program of the ANC when it, when it first gets elected in, in 1994, Reconstruction and Development Program. The problem, of course, is building lots of houses doesn't magically make the sewage here or the water system or the electricity, if you follow my, my drift. So the, the frustration between the promises associated with the end of, of the hated apartheid regime and the growing realization that not only was service delivery not coming nearly quickly enough, it may even not be coming at all. And at the same time, wealth remained concentrated in a few hands, although I guess a few other hands started to have to benefit from it, generated some resistance. But that resistance, uh, and I think that's a, that's a key political point, that resistance was marginal to electoral politics. Because the alliance, the ANC was in, an, in a, still is in a governing alliance with the Communist Party and with COSATU, the Trade Union Federation. And even though there were resistance and disagreements within COSATU to GEAR, for example, and to a number of programs, COSATU never withdrew its support from the ANC. So effectively, uh, and this until uh, another important event in the, in the mid-20-teens, until NUMSA, the largest trade union, the metalworkers' union, decided to withdraw from COSATU, effectively really undermining COSATU's influence. The union movement, which was, of course, a very, the strongest, perhaps, part of the anti-apartheid resistance domestically in the 1970s and 80s, was not effectively uh, uh, trying to, to block uh, these neoliberal policies. And I think that's really important because it allowed the ANC to marginalize and to undermine the, the resistance from below that wasn't able to get any kind of political articulation. I'm sure some people who've been involved in it would have further ideas as to, as to why things didn't work out. But it seems to me one, one important element was to, to fight a battle against the state and against private capital in many cases on the ground is, is something that is really important. But when there is no broader articulation uh, with either a political party or a broader movement that is proposing an alternative, if the state decides to dig in its heels, to call you names uh, and to make your life difficult, and at some point <laughs> a few years ago, even to bar the South African Broadcasting Corporation from reporting on local service delivery protests so as to make them invisible, it's really difficult to effect any change. That's possibly one of the reasons, the lack of effective mobilization. I've worked a lot with, with workers' groups in South Africa. And one thing that's one, one statement that I've heard many times, phrased in many different ways, has really stuck with me. And it's this statement, you know, people, workers in a conversation, realizing just how problematic government policies were, how problematic their own parties or own unions were in relation to how they were making compromises is not is not even the right word deals you know, with 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 large scale finance capital deals that that made it difficult for for ordinary people working or unemployed to
to, to get a better life. And feeling this frustration and feeling the frustration at how to act politically against it and making this really fascinating statement, it was easier to fight apartheid than it is to fight neoliberalism. And what they meant with this, I think, is that in the 1980s, the apartheid regime had everything to displease. It was a brutal minority white regime that, that was repressing all forms of, of resistance, you know, black mostly, most violently, but also starting to crack down much, much less harshly on, on white liberals. It was a regime that was clearly propped up by large capitalist corporations. So uh, a lot of the resistance from below entail movements of boycott, where there were calls for boycott, for example, of certain buses that were state-owned or privately owned by, by white capitalists, and that in part created the springboard for the emergence in South Africa. It's, it's one of the cases that South Africa is like other African countries of a, of a very ubiquitous small collective taxi industry, which has become today the main transportation means for people in South Africa. So there was a, you know, the, this regime, through the hatred for this regime and for the big corporations that were clearly its allies, it was possible for the trade union movement to mix a form of workplace mobilization and political mobilization, where everybody had a clear objective, which was regime change. But the moment the regime changed, and that regime ended up in a way that it took years for people to realize just how much it did that, but ended up really espousing or, or re reforging an alliance, in some ways, perhaps even a deeper alliance, with the same incumbent capitalists, which of course provided means for the incorporation of a number of people in the regime into that minerals energy complex, some people call it now minerals energy and finance complex, people suddenly were at a loss because were lost because politically and, and understandably for many South Africans, and especially for most black South Africans, the notion of voting against the ANC, which was the party that brought them the end of apartheid, that brought them democracy, the right to vote, that brought them the end of the passes, which black people needed to move from one place to the next or to be in certain areas, and all of the million daily humiliations associated with that regime was unthinkable, right? So there was always this, there's always a tendency, which is very human, to try and think, but surely if they're saying all these nice things, they must be telling the truth, right? And, and that made it very difficult for radical movements to, to really gain any leverage, substantial leverage to, to mount some kind of political opposition. And in fact, today, to this day in South Africa, the, the main political opposition remains, even though uh, there's other parties, but remains the Democratic Alliance, which, of course, has changed over time, but remains seen as a liberal party, which is historically very white. So in this context where you have for various contingent or structural reasons, you have limits on the possibilities of building coherent, critical discourses of the neoliberal policies that are being implemented, carried out, and possibilities also for broad coalitions and mobilizations. Are these limitations or these constraints which inhibited um, such uh, critical initiatives what influenced you, what compelled you to come up with a project such as APORD? APORD was, was really born out of of a number of things, but I think one of them was, was a deep belief that even though being aware of alternative ways to think about economic strategy was probably not going to be enough 
to make those strategies a reality, it was certainly a necessary step. And the realization that the relatively poor teaching of, of alternative economics or non-mainstream economics in the global north was mirrored by an even poorer availability of such alternatives in the global south, not for lack of the global south itself having generated many of those, but simply as one of the many side effects of structural adjustment and, and restructuring, of course, in, in, in structural adjustment, as, as you know, I'm sure, tertiary education was basically deemed to be a luxury for many developing countries, not something they should focus their efforts on. And so there was this, and then there was a direct inspiration, of course, which was something the uh, Hajun Chang, the, the Korean economist from Cambridge and famous uh, heterodox development economist had started a few years before a program called CAPORD, Cambridge Advanced Program on Rethinking Development Economics. Um, CAPORD was a program aimed at policymakers and academics from the global south. I believe it was funded by the Ford Foundation and Hanjun was able to, to bring together really an A-list of, of development economists. And this program really made a strong impression on a number of people, including Nimrod, including Lionel October, who was at the time the, the Director General of the Department of Trade and Industry, made a very strong impression on a number of, of participants. Uh, and the idea was to say, well, you know, this is a, a global program, but there certainly is a need for a program like this uh, for the African continent. And I think the great opportunity was that within the DTI, there were people like uh, Lionel October, like Nimrod Zark, uh, like Rob Davis, uh, the minister, who, who were keen to support such a program and not, not just to support such a program for South Africans, which I think is, is one of the great things about a port, but to have such a program with uh, an African perspective. Um, the, the need for a program like this for me was very clear in, in realizing also in South Africa and beyond. I also had a, a brief experience in Mali and before that I, I worked also in, in Morocco you know, the, the consequence of having a purged economics education, purged of Keynes even sometimes, certainly purged of structuralism or purged or simply where, where all alternatives to so-called free market policies, all these alternative theories which have a long history and which played a key part in, in the development of a number of, of so-called late-coming countries, late-coming were simply not taught, not spoken about. And that meant that people who found themselves in positions of power, were not able to draw on them as a, a toolkit where they could get some ideas from. After contextualizing the reception of neoliberal ideas and policy templates in South Africa, we will continue this conversation with Nicolas in the subsequent episode by exploring how APORT, the African Program on Rethinking Development Economics, sought to offer an alternative educational model. If you don't want to miss out on that, subscribe to Polico if you haven't already. Until then, take care.